Well, welcome to lesson number seven in our continuing class of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. <clears throat> as we go through this material, what is so important to understand is not only the mandate. You know what a mandate is? It's not a suggestion. If, if your boss gives you a mandate, what does that mean? It's something what? You got to do, you better do, and if you don't, there's going to be complications and ramifications. You're going to get in trouble. So a mandate is not a suggestion. And you'll notice, for instance, throughout the Word of God, there's never a suggestion of people gathering before the Lord. It's never a suggestion. If you have time, if you're feeling okay, if everything's on all right, it's never a suggestion. It's always what? Amen, it's the summons of the king yes. to come into his presence. And that's even for the church today. Amen? Amen? That's where many church people are really missing it. Well, the grace of God. and all. No. The grace of God says the presence of God is open to you. Come on in now while you have ability and while you have opportunity. Amen? Because there could be a day when that presence is closed. And so we don't want to be like that as the people of God. But you notice that the mandate that Jesus is given and that he must fulfill if all righteousness is to be completed. In other words, if God's original creative purpose is to be completed and brought to fruition, Jesus has to fulfill all three of the offices, a prophet, priest, and king, he has to fulfill them comprehensively and complementarily. In other words, one walking and flowing into the other, and as they all three intermix, if you would, as one. What does that mean? That is an identification and revelation of how God is within himself, the three persons of God, three distinct divine persons, but flowing into one another, relational roles, you know, never one being independent of the other, but always the three being interdependent and complementary. In other words, fulfilling or completing one another in these roles. But as we look at these roles, and as we continue this morning with the role of priest, which is going to take us a little longer than I anticipated, which I think is good, what we don't want to do is miss in the midst of what we are studying of each role, in the midst of as we study each role, to miss the purpose that God has ordained for these roles. It wasn't just, I want my son to fulfill three roles. Thank you a lot. That was great. Now we can go back to something else. The entire purpose of the fulfillment of these three roles is that we, the people of God, would be able to dwell in his, his midst, to come into the presence of the glory of God. Remember the tent of meeting where God dwells. And not only to come into the presence of God's glory, but to go out from the presence of God's glory with the presence of God's glory and to manifest through 
our function as a church, these three roles to the nations so that we would be God's nation on earth as Israel was supposed to be, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself and I won't talk about that too much until the next couple of weeks, that we are to be God's nation on earth that is administering the presence of God in us through these roles to the people. And so when we talk about prophet or priest or king, <clears throat> let us make sure that we are in the process of hearing this, asking the Holy Spirit, what is my place? Because every one of us are called to individually and collectively be fulfilling the same three roles. And so be asking God for revelation of how you are doing in this area <clears throat> and how these roles are to be impacting our lives and how we are to be responding to and carrying out and living forth the very roles that were given to Adam, that were given to Christ as completion and are now being given to us as the body of Christ. Amen? Very important not to just give this to, okay, Jesus did this, Adam was supposed to do it, he didn't fulfill it, Jesus fulfilled it, and now all of this was for our benefit. Amen? Why? Because God has created us for himself for fellowship, and everything is heading toward the completion and the fruition of that grand purpose that God will have a people with whom he will fellowship together in his tabernacle, in his sanctuary, which will be now the place of the tent of meeting with God in fellowship. So Jesus has to fulfill this, has to accomplish these three roles in order that God will have his purpose fulfilled in us. So don't disassociate these roles from ourselves. And this has been a challenge for me, looking at this and studying it, and okay, how am I doing here, what happening here? And then as we get specific about this in several weeks, as to husbands and wives, <clears throat> this is where the husbands are going to really be hurt, including myself. I've already started looking at that and thinking about it. It's like, mm, mm, ah. But where there's great deficiency in a husband or in a wife, does that mean that we ignore it? No, that means that we teach it, preach it, confess weaknesses, and embrace what God is doing. Amen? So we can't run away from it, and we're not going to run away from it even where there's great deficit. We're going to pursue it and embrace it so that the deficit can be overcome by the revelation and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for ministering to us this morning as we continue to look at your grand, grand, great word of revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you remember we looked last week at the tabernacle as its double or twin purpose, and actually it's triple purpose, the purpose of God's dwelling. Remember? Exodus 40, verse 34. And the glory of God, remember, came down. Exodus 25 begins the instructions for the tabernacle. And then we go through a number of chapters. I think it's 31, two, 31 and 2 and 3, which talk about an, uh, the aside issue of the 
what's the mean that, that calf, that golden calf. And then we get back to then we finish the instructions of how to build and what is to be contained in the tabernacle. Now the construction itself begins, and I think it's chapter 34, I sometimes forget all my chapters, until chapter 40. So by chapter 40 of Exodus, the tabernacle is completed. And what happens? For the first time, for the first time, we must see this, for the first time since Eden, God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. The Lord leaves Sinai, which is the mountain of God, which is the place of his dwelling. And he's going to come into the tabernacle. So verse 34 tells you what? The glory of the Lord what? Filled the tabernacle. What a picture of the glory of God coming into a man on a particular day, dwelling with him, but then indwelling him in glory on the day of his baptism. What a picture. And then, so now the tabernacle is the dwelling place of God in chapter 40, verse 34. But then we read these words in verse 35. But Moses could not what? Enter. Do you remember last week? If you didn't get these teachings, please keep up with them online. Please do that. So Moses was not even able to enter. So something has happened. Because the tabernacle has been specifically designated by God to be the location of his dwelling in which he and his people may meet together in fellowship. So the temple is also now going to be the tent of meeting. But in order for the tabernacle to be the tent of meeting, something must happen. Some way must be made for a unclean, sinful people to enter into the presence of God and live. Remember, you can't come into my presence and live unless you've been prepared by God. And so what is the answer to how can we approach into the presence of God? That answer is given to us where? In Leviticus, correct? Leviticus, especially the first 16 chapters. So once the glory filled the tabernacle, it became the location of God's presence but not even Moses could enter. Therefore, the question of how to enter the presence of God's glory is answered in Leviticus. What is Leviticus all about? Oh, I don't know what Leviticus. Yes, you do. Leviticus is how to enter. So what happens? In the very first verse of Leviticus, God now speaks to Moses where? From where? Not from Sinai anymore. From where? From the tabernacle. Do you remember that? Leviticus 1.1, the Lord Yahweh speaks to Moses from where? The tabernacle. Now God's dwelling is among his people in his sanctuary, the tabernacle. And he is going to give copious and detailed instruction how to come into his presence. And that's what Leviticus 1 to 16 is all about. And then 17 to 27 will be how to function as his holy nation. So the system showed, this Levitical system, this prescription of how to enter, showed that the only way into the presence of God's glory for fellowship with him was the removal of the penalty and the impurity of sin through the death of an innocent. Leviticus 17, 11 to 12, very important verses. 
uh, I mean 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. There's the demand and command, the mandate of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. That's where it's stated clearly in Leviticus 17, 11, and 12. So when the Old New Testament talks about the shedding of blood and why the blood, all the blood of the Old Testament, why? Because 17, 11 to 12 tells you why. Because blood is where the life is. And God requires the death of an innocent for the purpose of redeeming the fallen or the death of the sin that is created by sin. The wages of sin is death, remember, in Romans 6.23. And so only the priest could administer this sacrifice. Only the priest can do this. Only the high priest we see in Leviticus 8. So this system, this system of sacrifices and cleansing an atonement by the high priest and by the other priests. The system remains in place. It continues to be in effect until the incarnation. When Jesus, in his role as priest, makes entrance into the presence of God's glory possible. That's why he comes. He comes to make entrance into the tabernacle of God possible for God's people so that God and his people may come together in this tent of meeting in fellowship. Why? So that in fellowship, God's image bearers may enjoy the presence of God and God may enjoy the presence and fellowship of his people forever. That's why Jesus comes to fulfill this, to make it possible. So this morning, we begin to look at how Jesus accomplishes this in his role as priest. How does he open the way into the presence of God's glory through the sacrificial system? And by the way, as we look at this, he is going to open the way. What does Jesus say about himself in John 16? I am what? The way. What way? Way? Huh? Who? What? Remember, Jesus is a Jew. And when he talks about the way, he's talking about the way into the presence of the glory of God as in, uh, identified in the temple in those days and in the tabernacle, you remember, in the wilderness until the temple is finally built by Solomon. So he's talking about, so when Jesus says, I'm the way, he is collecting all of this Levitical system, all of these years of sacrifices and the high priest duties and all of the Levitical activities as pertaining to the tabernacle and the temple. He's collecting it all unto himself. And he's saying, all of that now is subsumed into me and I am the way that all that typified and looked forward to. I am all of that. That's what he is saying. That's what he means. We don't pick it up because we know so little about the Old Testament, which is a shame. We have to get a broader view, an understanding, an appreciation, what, of the Old Testament. So when we hear these words of thundering from the mountain of God, we hear God finally saying, my way is now being open to my people through this priest on earth. Amen? It is incredible what is being meant in these words which we pass over so quickly. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and you know, you go on. 
So this morning, let's look at some of this. <clears throat> Ever since Adam's fall, remember that? Genesis 6, I'm sorry, 3, 6. And one of the things we're going to talk about is a thought that should have come into our hearts and minds about Adam. And we're going to talk about that later on as we proceed through this. What should Adam have done when his wife partook of the fruit? Adam is given to be a priest. What do priests do? They make atonement. What should Adam have done? I'll give you a hint. Adam, as a man without sin, should have made atonement for his wife. Just as the second Adam, who was without sin, did make atonement for his bride. Amen? Have any of us ever thought, what, why, what, what was Adam doing? What should he have done? What could he have done? Do, do, you, do you begin to see the implications of this and how this begins to come together? Therefore, what should husbands do for their wives? Somebody wrote somewhere, and you husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her having sanctified her. Remember that? You see the priestly duties continuing, but that's for another day. Ever since Adam's, it's hard to keep things in the background. They, they keep trying to shove themselves on. Ever since Adam's fall, the Lord has been moving to recover his original intention, to remove the alienation and separation between himself and his people because of their sin by declaring peace over them so that they would be able to enter into his presence. So the word peace, shalom, in the Old Testament means a variety of things. It means the condition in which everything is at in a correct state. It means a place of well, a time or an atmosphere of welfare. It means that everything is really according and functioning according to the way that God wants it. This is peace. There's no discord. There's no alienation. There's no separation. There's no problem here. Everything according to the function of fellowship in God's presence, according to his will, is at work. That's called peace. The alienation and the uh, opposition has all been given, I'm sorry, driven away. So there is peace. It doesn't, you know, that's what peace means. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He, he did. He did create chaos knowing this. Chaos is outside the garden. Remember, we talked about that. Well, peace. Now, I want you to keep this in your mind. Peace. Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift the light of the countenance of his face upon you and give you peace. See, that's the benediction of the blessing of the priest once the sacrifice is finished. 
he comes forth and he proclaims peace to his people. Just getting ahead. I, I just can't stand this thing in me. What do we see of Jesus' first words to his disciples after the resurrection? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Remember John chapter 20? Peace be with you. So the alienation must be destroyed by the sacrifice through the Levitical system according to the specificities of the system resulting in peace between God and man. What verse should be resounding in your heart right now? Romans 5.1. So there are two prophecies in Isaiah. For first, we're going to talk about the Old Testament coming into the New as getting ready to look at the ministry of Jesus as priest. We don't jump right into the New Testament because we always want to connect everything together as a comprehensive whole. Never teach the Word of God or share the Word of God in your groups or as teachers or whatever without doing it within the context of the entire Word of God. It doesn't do justice to what God wants you to do as a teacher. Amen? So those of you who are teaching and sharing Bible studies, if you don't know your Old Testament before you open the new to your people, get into the old to find out what is going on and bring it together and make it a comprehensive majesty. So let's look at some of the old. Two prophecies in Isaiah. We're not going to only look but a couple here or there. We'd be here a long time doing all this extensively. Two prophecies in Isaiah that have particular relevance to this goal, this this. this context, this place, this atmosphere, this relationship of peace through the Levitical system. Pre peace through the Levitical system. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. <clears throat> For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Why? Because he is the peace of God who brings the peace of God to us through the fulfillment of the Levitical system in himself and by himself. That's why it's called the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace. The increase of this relationship with God of fellowship and intimacy, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty has accomplished it. This verse, these verses are accomplished through the priestly function of Christ. This is a priestly function set of verses. What is the passage in this what is the relationship of this passage to the priesthood? What is it? Because the goal of the Levitical system was peace with God, this passage tells us that a child will be the one who will remove the separation between God and his people, thus establishing peace. You see that in Colossians 1.20. A child will be born. And what is his function? To establish peace between God and his people. We call that being born again, being saved, being redeemed, a lot of other words. But today we're using more the Levitical system 
information or terminology, you see. We have to think about it in broader terms than sometimes we do. I'm saved. What does that mean? Well, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. What does that mean? What are the ramifications of it? How does it work out? What happened? What does it mean, Old Testament, New Testament? What is the theology of it all? Listen to Isaiah 53, 1 through 8. How does this child do this? How does this child accomplish peace? There's going to be a child, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. He's going to bring peace. Great. He's going to bring peace. Well, Isaiah 53 tells you. I'm just reading the first eight verses here. Who has believed what they have heard from us? Or who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a job description, if you would, a role description of Jesus' role as priest. For he, who is that? This man, this coming priest. For he grew up before him, before God, like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He doesn't look like an alien, uh, an, uh, you know, an Aryan, you know, tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, muscular. He's a Jew. He's Jewish. He's Semitic. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgression of my people. What was all this about? Peace. Peace. In the death of this child, peace with God is accomplished as celebrated with a peace offering, the shalem, the shalom which ended with a meal. That is why he's called the Prince of Peace. We won't get into these probably, but you will see that there are five offerings. And one of the offerings at the end is called the Peace Offering. Some of you may know something about this. The Peace Offering is the only one where the people were allowed and the priests were allowed to eat the meat of the offering in a meal. It was a meal that celebrated atonement has been completed. It's completed. Jesus celebrated this kind of meal before his death, anticipating and looking forward to his death to show us this was a meal that commemorated and anticipated peace with my people for the first time ever in a full way. So we'll look ahead. Remember John 20, verse 19. Just looking ahead. Remember I said that. The priest would leave and come out of the tabernacle and bless the people with peace. 
John 9, 2019, and on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said what? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Some 400 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Malachi, remember, prophesied two events in Malachi 3.1. Two events. The first event, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's the Lord speaking. The second event, then suddenly the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, saith the Lord Almighty. These are the two things that Malachi said are going to happen as this Prince of Peace is finally among us in the person of Jesus in his role as priest. The first event fulfilled in the announcement and birth of John the Baptist, 400 plus years after Malachi, year after year after year, no word from heaven. Heaven is silence. No word, no prophecy. Year after year, God is saying nothing to his people prophetically through any of these ministers of prophecy. Hundreds of years, 400 years. Then all of a sudden, within a period of time encapsulated with only a few months, all of a sudden, prophetic activity and ministry burst forth burst forth all of a sudden. Luke 1, 5 to 17. The Lord, you remember, appears to Zacharias. Zachariah, he is a priest doing the services in the temple. And he tells him that his wife Elizabeth, who is very old and barren, both of these people are old people, that she will give birth to a son and this son would be, go, he would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Then Zechariah was given a revelation about the significance of his son's birth in Luke 76 and 79. You remember, he didn't believe him and he was mute until the son was born. And then when the son is born, the, Lord, the revelation comes to him, the purpose of this boy that was born. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is the messenger, remember, of Malachi 3.1. Remember that? I will send what? My messenger. This is the messenger. With the birth of John the Baptist, that is the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. Now God has set in motion the unstoppable activity of his spirit to bring about the fulfillment of his creative purpose as we see in Genesis 1. What was so significant about this one whose, whose, John, whose way John was to prepare? He would, this one whom John is going to be the messenger, the one to prepare the way, this one whose way John is preparing will be, give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That is priestly terminology. He's going to give the knowledge of salvation. Remember, salvation, bringing peace, reestablishing the relationship between God and man through forgiveness. Forgiveness, as you know, and every Jew would know this, forgiveness is only through sacrifice. So this immediately says that this one is born to be a priest. This would be his role as priest. That's what's being accentuated here. Doesn't mean that he's not the king. Doesn't mean he's not a prophet. He is all of that. But now we're accentuating his role of priest as he is also the king and he's also the prophet. 
This one will fulfill the requirements of Leviticus. By being both the priest and the sacrifice, making entrance into God's presence possible. 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So why does Jesus born? What is he saying? He's come as God's priest to function in this role in the same way as the high priest functioned for years and years and years. As Adam should have functioned, now God's second Adam is on the earth to function in this role of priest to finally, fully, and forever bring God's people into the tent of meeting where God and his people will dwell at peace forever. That's what's happening here. In this way, you see, Jesus satisfied the Father's eternal purpose, eternal purpose of becoming the way. Remember John 14 and 114. He became the way. Sorry, I got it backward. 14.6, isn't it? Yes, I got it backward. 14.6, into the tent of meeting, thereby bringing all of God's people with him into the presence of glory. So that's what's happening here. Because remember, the Old Testament high priest was the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. But when he did that, he did it by himself, but he did it as a representative of the people so that God saw and declared that all of Israel was being represented by this one man's offering. So when this one man made an acceptable offering on the Day of Atonement and came out of the tabernacle, God declared that all of his people now were for another year in a relationship, a fellowship with him, even though only one man could go into the tent of meeting. That can happen into the presence of God's glory literally until this man who will come will Complete it, complete all the requirements. But everything was being completed just, what, what, what can I say, uh, uh, partially, if you would, partially, until Jesus comes to fulfill it completely in himself. So all the background, John, someone's coming, someone's coming, the messenger's coming, John is born. Why is he born? To prepare the way of the mess, um, to prepare the way of God's priest. Who is this priest? Who is this priest? Malachi three one. Remember, begins to tell you, for the Lord Himself, will son, whom you seek, will suddenly appear and come into His temple. Remember that. That's the one. Now we're going to talk about Jesus' birth and purpose is fully announced. Remember, first to Mary. Remember in Luke chapter one twenty six to thirty three. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in Galilee, verse 27, to a virgin pledged to marry a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her. Now, now put yourself in Mary's place. 14-year-old girl or so, innocent girl, virgin. Put yourself in her place. This is the first time anything like this had ever happened on earth. This is absolutely unique. Nothing like this has ever happened. And the angel went to her and says, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I guess she was. I guess she was. An angel of the Lord appears to you. You're highly favored. Great. What does that mean? But the angel said, do not be afraid, for you, Mary, you have found favor with God. 
you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Wow. Think. Mary is going to become pregnant, and she's going to begin to tell people, it wasn't Joseph in me. It was the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Think. Somebody gets pregnant in this church, a young girl, and she tells you it's the Holy Spirit. Now, come on, come on. Think. Th thank you, Gwen, for laughing so much. It's right. It's laughable. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It doesn't happen. Think what she went through. Think of the shame. Think of the ridicule of people. Think. Oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit. Okay. Hmm. Then the angel appears to Joseph. Remember, Joseph was going to put her away quietly, being a just man. And in Matthew 1.28, when the angel instructs Joseph, he says, and you shall name his name Jesus, the same name that he gave to Mary. Why? And he gives him the reason, because he's going to be a priest. How do you know that? How do we know that, Lester? Because he will save his people from their sin. The purpose of the priest was to save the people of God <clears throat> from their sin through the administration successfully and accurately of the sacrificial system. Amen? This is the primary purpose of the priest. There were other purposes, but this is the primary purpose of the priesthood. Then you remember to the shepherds. See, one group, one group, one group announcing, my priest, my priest, my priest is here. Shepherds, remember Luke 2, 8, 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were, as King James says, sore afraid. These guys were terrified. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. Whose joy? Whose joy? God's joy. Not the joy of people, yet that joy will come. But at that moment, whose joy are we talking about? The joy of this God who created us to be in his image finally is bringing forth the full revolution, resolution of that purpose. Finally. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and the rest of the verses will finally in this one man be completely fulfilled so that God's created purpose may now be established on the earth in reality through the church. Amen? Finally, finally we're there. So great, uh, news of great joy there will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior priestly terminology who is Christ the Lord now that's kingly terminology you see so you see the combination of both but we'll talk about the whole purpose of the word Christ later on and this will be a sign to you you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude that heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Peace. Peace. The purpose of the Levitical system was to bring about a cessation of the separation 
and the warfare between God and his people and make the two become one, declaring peace. Amen? You see here, finally, all of that which the Old Testament has been about since the very first sacrifice in Genesis, since the very first sacrifice, finally, it's coming to its crescendo completion in this one man. Then you remember when the baby was taken into the temple in Luke 2, 25 to 32. Simeon, an old man, an old prophet is there. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Jesus is only a few days old now and was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, the conclusion and the fulfillment of all that God had promised. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, you see, by revelation. And it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, this anointed one, this priest. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child in, uh, in Jesus, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, the circumcision, remember on the eighth day, Simeon took him in his arms. Can you imagine? This man has been waiting for you're not going to die until you see with your physical eyes my salvation upon the earth. You will see the high priest of all high priests. And Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, priestly work, which you have prepared in the sight of all the people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Then you remember to Anna, there's an old lady there too. See how God loves the old people? Then there was an old lady. He's not showing this to kids, by the way. You'll notice that. It's just old people. And then to Anna in Luke 2, 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, Verse 38, coming up to them at that moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about this child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. In other words, a redemption of Jerusalem, well, Israel. In other words, redeemed. He is going to be the one who will be the purchase price to purchase us back to God. He will be the one who will give himself for the redemption of his people through his sacrificial death. Then to John, and we'll close with this. Some 30 years later, Jesus comes into the wilderness. He comes to the river Jordan, and John the Baptist sees him. And next week, we'll go into more detail. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we're going to cover this next week, but I want you to see something and think about it. What was John saying about Jesus? He was saying two things about Jesus in this one verse. The lamb is a who. The lamb is a man. The lamb is the sacrifice. The man is the priest. 
That's what John is saying here. I know typically when we say the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we think that the sacrifice, the sacrifice. Rarely do we think that there is no sacrifice without a priest to make it. It's just an animal standing there. So John says, behold the Lamb who? The Lamb is a man. We'll go over this next week. So I'm going to repeat myself. The Lamb is a who. The Lamb is a man. The Lamb is the sacrifice. The who is the priest who makes it. Amen? See you next week.